You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelists Carla Ewert and Sheila Woodruff. Hi, ladies, and thanks for both being on the show today. Hello. Hi. Let's go around the virtual table and introduce ourselves before we get started. Carla, start us off. Hi, I'm Carla Ewert, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I work part-time at... um, a Christian community called Solomon's Porch here in town. And I also um, am a freelance writer and editor. Um, I am married and have two daughters. One is seven and one is seven months old. So um, they keep me awfully busy too. So that's me. And my name is Sheila Woodruff. I live in Louisville, Kentucky with my husband and our one and a half year old daughter. And I'm uh, currently in the flurry of preparing for child number two um, to come along here in about Oh, eight or nine weeks. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) Victoria. Thanks. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I uh, am thankfully not expecting a baby because that would be way too much for me to deal with right now. Uh, Though I'm very excited for your new addition and we'll send him lots of awesome presents. Uh, I am currently uh, working on a dissertation, which honestly feels like a different kind of gestation right now, Uh, and uh, I teach part-time at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. So that's me. Uh, Today we are continuing our discussion of perspectives on biblical womanhood by talking about Sarah Bessie's book, Jesus Feminist. Um, Sheila, can you tell us a little bit about how the book has been received, what some of the reviews are like? Sure. Um, So I kind of started with a general public review, you know, uh, good old places like Amazon and Goodreads. And on the whole, the book gets um, fairly favorable reviews, four out of five stars in general, on those sites for whatever those rating systems are worth. Um, Some of the pluses from the folks that I read there are – are her tome, although as I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, that's also sometimes a criticism. Um, but in general, you know, Bessie is friendly and engaging and the word that comes up over and over again is loving, you know, shows this complete lack of rancor toward her opponents, um, which a lot of the reviewers found refreshing, especially those who aren't necessarily Christian um, and were a little skeptical of reading the book in the first place. And then, um, you know, the other things that folks liked were, Um, the early chapters which define her Jesus feminism as she reads his life and ministry and then reads Paul's letters through the lens of Jesus. Um, And then the the power of her story and stories in general and making, um, you know, scripture relevant to those of us these days. And then um, some other things, the more critical aspects I saw, there, there didn't seem to be any, um, major popular criticisms like we had last week or on our last podcast with uh, um, Rachel Held Evans' book, um, not No Vagina Gate here, but um, the couple criticisms that again I found over and over again, including 
um, from some critical reviews you would expect, like from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. A um, couple things. One, there was some, um, some, some people who didn't like that they didn't see what she was writing as original, um, that she was using other academic egalitarian voices as her own. Um, to which I, I said, as a somewhat former academic, you know, this is what you do when you're, you're writing something and other people have said stuff about it. You have to say stuff about what the other people said and incorporate it into your, your viewpoint and your discussion. Um, you apply them to the situation as appropriate. So I thought that that dismissal of her book as unoriginal is pretty unfair. Um, especially because she's trying to seek out an audience with folks who might not be terribly familiar with either half of, of, uh, you know, her title. That is those who are either unfamiliar or uncomfortable with, um, either the Christian or the feminist doctrine as, you know, separate things. Um, and I, I'll put those words in air quotes since neither is neatly summed up or lumped into some monolithic set of beliefs, um, which we've talked about here from time to time, you know, like every podcast. The other criticism I've seen is that she doesn't dig into women's ministries beyond fashion shows and craft parties. Um, and, and, you know, that's maybe a fair criticism. There are a lot of um, ministry opportunities and um, specific organizations that are set up to, to work with women specifically. And, and maybe her reductivism is something that we could talk about further on in the, the podcast today. Um, and that trying to get to her point, she kind of ignores the other bits here and there. And then the final was, uh, just a dispute with her argument against complementarianism. Not surprising that, you know, there are a number of complementarianists in the crowd who thought she, that this is a straw man argument, that she wasn't really saying what complementarians say. Um, that again, she's reductive and assumptive in talking about that viewpoint and dismissing it. Um, Unfortunately, as I was trying to dig deeper, the folks who had these complaints didn't spend much time addressing them. And I kept looking for a review that would, you know, try to to speak back to it and say, she says this about what we believe, but really we believe, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, Instead, I just found a lot of, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get us. Too bad. Shame on her. Um, And I, for one, would really like to know what she got wrong biblically or personally or, you know, what have you, because I, I, I felt very um, much along the lines of what Bessie was saying herself when it came to discussing those issues of submission and, and what have you that often pop up. Um, so those are the, the main critical points that I thought were worth discussing or bringing up here. Um, but that was about it. Good. Uh, Thank you for placing us in this conversation a little bit more. And now let's dig a bit deeper. Carla, tell us about what a Jesus feminist is and what you think Bessie uses the term to mean. Sure. Um, The the full title is Jesus Feminist, an Invitation to Revisit the Bible's View of Women. Um, And I thought that the word invitation in the title was kind of an interesting choice in that it, it really was inviting, kind of pulling people in from from different viewpoints to have them discuss this topic. Um, and her use of, of Jesus Feminist, I think, came out of some personal experience um, where she would claim to be a feminist in church and would get some some kickback from that, some um, 
some pushback saying, you know, what kind of feminist are you? And she got to the point where she would just say a Jesus feminist. And for her, that meant that her commitment to feminism, to equality and to personhood for women, um, came from her commitment to Jesus. It came from her understanding of his teachings and her commitment to, um, to love and to, to the world and those types of things. Uh, it came out of that. She, she talked a little bit in, in the early chapters about feminism and its early history as, as a Christian movement, that it, that it began as a Christian movement. Um, and that there was, there was a lot of work done by Christians, um, towards, um, suffragist movements and abolitionist movements that were, um, based around feminist causes. Um, so she talked a little bit about that and, and sort of re, she talked about reclaiming the term feminist as Christian, as a Christian term. Um, but for her, it mainly comes out of her sort of, uh, commitment to, to the, to the life and work of Jesus. Um, and she's a little ambiguous, I think positively probably about what that means. Um, she seems reluctant to, to nail it down into here's one specific thing that, that being a Jesus follower looks like, um, or, or a Jesus feminist. Um, and I think that's very intentional on her part, um, because she is trying to, to break some of the, the boundaries and some of the, um, constructs that have been there and just, just leave it a little bit open for people to follow Jesus in a, in an alive way, I guess is the way that she presented it in an alive sort of changing and moving and, and constantly motivated by love, but also very aware of what's happening, um, that you can be a part of or, 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 um, perpetuate that sort of Jesus movement kind of stuff. So, um, that's where it seemed to come from for her. It was, it was definitely a personal, conviction, um, from her own walk that caused her to be both a Jesus person and a feminist and that, that somehow the feminism was unavoidable for her based on her belief in Jesus. All right. Um, I, I like what you said about her lack of clarification being positive. I, I feel like, um, I feel like that's good because it leaves both terms, um, open to to lived experience. She talks so much in the book about how um, different people are good at different things and different people communicate in different ways and that's good and we should affirm that. Uh, So I I think that that lack of definition really does fit in with the scope of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it seemed to definitely be part of the goal of the book, I felt like. Good. Um, So for my part in the background here, before we dig deeper into the reading, uh, I wanted to talk about the book's foreword, which is written by Rachel Held Evans, whose book, The Year of Biblical Womanhood, we discussed last time. Um, And I think that Evans's foreword is doing a couple of things, Um, a a little less uh, creatively and a little more practically, I think this foreword is about, and maybe even primarily about, name recognition. Um, Evans is, as we said last time, a really famous, um, some would say infamous, Christian women's blogger, and though she and Bessie do do seem to be friends, um, Evans is quoted quite a few times in the book, included being listed as one of Bessie's spiritual midwives, more on that term later. Um, this does seem partially to, you know, get people interested in the book. Um, in addition to that kind of more practical purpose, the foreword frames the book as being about personal stories and the importance of personal stories 
and the fact that personal stories can serve as a means of liberation. Um, it, the foreword opens with a quote by Maya Angelou um, that says, uh, There is no agony like bearing an untold story inside of you. Um, and then Evans talks about how we can use our personal stories as women of faith to free ourselves from the hold of the patriarchy. So storytelling is important and central to the book, and indeed there's a, a great deal of Bessie's own personal narrative uh, in the book proper. Um, that's how the foreword starts. The foreword ends with um, Evans including Bessie in the refrain that composes the end of the year of biblical womanhood, uh, where she says that her whole project was about asking for permission to be involved in the activities of the church and to not feel bad about wanting that permission. Um, Evans says of Bessie, On her blog and in this wonderful book, Sarah does what all good storytellers do. She gives us permission. Permission to laugh, permission to question, permission to slow down a bit, permission to listen, permission to confront our fears, permission to share our own stories with more bravery and love. As she puts it, there is more room, there is more room, there is room for all of us. One word at a time, Sarah liberates us from the agony of bearing our stories alone so we can follow Jesus, my favorite feminist, with more freedom and joy. I am so grateful. So uh, the foreword tells us that primarily this is a project um, about learning to speak our individual voices and learning that it's okay that we kind of don't have to say, um, don't have to say the same thing. Carla, can you tell us a little bit more about Bessie's own voice in the book? What's the tone of this book, and how is it set out? Sure. Um, I would call the tone exuberant, <laughs> for, for lack of a better better word. Um, she is uh, very. She tells a, it's kind of a mix of memoir and um, and instruction, I guess, didactic <laughs> literature. It's um, she spends a lot of time. Not a lot, but she spends quite a bit of time in each chapter talking through her personal journey to these to these moments of of sort of liberation or a change of thought toward herself as a woman. And different times, she's come up against the church's attitudes towards women that have been less than life giving for her. Um, and she talks through her her um, journey to marriage and and her her journey to motherhood and um, how particularly that has been difficult for her. Um, as she has had several losses of, of children and, and is now the mother of three. Um, so she talks through a lot of that and you, it's, it's very interesting to hear how those things played into her, her walk as a, as a feminist. Um, the, I would say though, the tone is so sort of playful and so, I don't know if playful is the right word. It's exuberant. It's very, very, um, just bounding <laughs> with wanting you to be involved and wanting you to enjoy and wanting you to, uh, um, to buy in, I guess. And I, I felt like maybe it pulls out some cynicism in me to say, to say this, but I felt like the, the tone was a little bit off putting to me just because I felt like it was such a, it was almost a sales pitch, um, for, for me and in, in my taste, I, I wanted maybe a little bit more scholarship and a little less rah, rah. Um, but that, that again, might say more about my own cynicism than anything. Um, 
But I felt like um, the way that she does invite you to to rethink terms like helpmeet and submission and those types of things, she does go into some passages of scripture that are sort of the main, um, I don't know, the ones that beat women over the head most often. And she looks at those again and, and does invite us to rethink those and gives us a little bit, a little bit of reason and history to do that. Um, but I felt like I would have liked a lot more there, a lot more history of those passages and, and where they came, where the interpretations came from. She goes back to, in some places to the original language and, and talks through why it wasn't, why it doesn't mean what we think it means kind of thing. And then goes back to Paul and to Jesus and talks through why it doesn't mean what we think it means. But I would be curious too, how it came to be interpreted the way that we have come to understand it. Um, So I appreciated, again, the invitation to rethink. And some of the things she invites us to rethink are are so strong. And her um, approach to those things is very helpful. Um, I would say that uh, there were several things that were very freeing for me. But I found the tone and just the sort of constant... um, we can do it. This is fantastic. We're on our way. This kind of thing to be a little bit overwhelming to me. And I, I wish there was maybe a little bit um, deeper dive into some of the things that she was discussing as far as scholarship. I am really happy that you've said that. I, I agree. And also, I, I didn't really expect to hear that from you because you're, um, and I say this with all the love in my heart, um, <laughs> you're a little bit more into that kind of earth mothery thing than I am. Um, and, and this book felt very like very hippie earth mother to me. Um, to the point that I, I, I was at the beginning of reading kind of put off by her, her tone. It it felt a little much to me. So I, I feel good and feel less cynical myself (laughs) that you have the same criticism. Yeah, no, I, and I, you know, there are certain things I'm earth mothery about, but when it comes to like, reading and thinking things through. I, I want to hear a, a thought process, you know? Um, so yeah, I was a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I, again, I, th- I think I'm more cynical than I maybe was at one point. I probably would have bought right into it at one point. And I have to say, as I read it, I felt myself being a little bit, um, um, aware of the fact that I wasn't, that at one point I would have really dug into this. And at this point I'm standing back a little ways. And I, and again, it just made me think through where I am at, at whether I'm being more cynical or more thoughtful and whether that's a, a growth or, a you know, so it was just, it was interesting to read it and think that once upon a time, this probably would have been the, a tone I would have really bought into. And this time it, it was not. So. And see, I have to interject and say that I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I was caught from the beginning. Um, you know, she, she establishes um, the invitation is like, you know, walking together on the beach somewhere in Canada, I'm assuming, and um, sitting down at the fire and opening a bottle of wine. And, and so I like I, I read it intentionally in that way. And I, I do wholeheartedly agree with both of you. I wish she had gotten um, a little more scholarly in places and had spent more time in the things that I found interesting as a, you know, as a, a, a scholar of theology, um, especially if she's trying to set up um, herself against these arguments that we've heard over and over again about submission and what biblical womanhood should look like. Um, but, but I really enjoyed it. And I think it reminded me a bit of, you know, in studying literature, the, the role of, um, I'll say, especially like early, well, maybe that's not fair, but like the, the role of poetry and of lyricism and of 
you know, like using words of others who have gone before you in a way that don't need to be defined, you know, that you're building on this rich tradition of um, storytelling and um, community, you know, and I, and I know that, well, I don't know. I believe she's doing that purposefully, not just to draw in readers, um, because as you guys have mentioned, it's not exactly drawing every reader that she might want to have, um, but that it's, it's, it's digging into that tradition and saying, um, you know, the way that others of us tell stories are valuable too. And, you know, and, and purposefully going about telling, um, her own story in this book form in that way. And I appreciated that even though I, you know, wish she had gotten a little meatier at times too. That It's interesting though, to hear you say that Sheila, because I, I think that was sort of my question was, is this an intentional act? Sort of the, the way that she's speaking um, is very conversational and is very bloggish, you know? Um, right. And, and I wondered, is there sort of an intentionality to that, that is in some way indicative of a, of a new voice? Um, that she's hoping women can adopt. That's very, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, and I wondered, I I wondered if it was an intentional voice in that way, sort of a reclaiming of sort of, um, a a feminine, I I hate to use that term, but sort of a a, a woman's way. Let's use that term. I want to use that term. (laughs) Okay. Okay. A feminine or woman's way of speaking and, and storytelling that, that is a way of participating in scholarship without having to be, and this, 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 I don't know how to feel about that. Like I, without, cause what I meant to say there is without having to be incredibly, um, detail oriented, I guess is where I'm headed. I don't know the right term there. Um, yes, but I, I, but I hate to excuse, I hate to excuse a scholarly la- laziness and I'm not saying she's being lazy, but a scholarly oversights by calling it, this is a new women's way of speaking. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad we're talking about this, even though we didn't, I think, 100% plan on going here. I'm glad we are. Um, I, I was thinking, the whole time I was sort of being put off by her tone, I was thinking, now, wait a minute, like, is this, is what I'm being put off by the femininity of it? Like, is, is this some sort of ecliche feminine thing? Where, um, look at my fancy French words, you guys, um, (laughs) where, where, like, we're supposed to read this as a female way of writing, a feminine way of writing, and it's, it's supposed to sort of chafe against what we think is academic and appropriate and scholarly and all those things, um, that are connoted as masculine. So I, I really went back and forth about that too. And I couldn't decide. I agree with you. That's exactly what I was thinking, Victoria, and trying to trying to decide and wished that there was some indication in her in her presentation about what she was doing there. You know, if it's unintentional and this why should this matter? But if it's unintentional, I felt there was maybe a little bit of of laziness. And I don't I'm not calling her lazy, but the the just the scholarship. Um, If it was an intentional sort of move against, like you're saying, traditional scholarship, there's, there's some real, um, positives to that, but I don't know why it should matter if it was intentional or not intentional. But for me, somehow I wanted to, I wanted some indication in the text to tell me that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. I me, also maybe I'm reading, yeah. Well, maybe I'm reading too much into it and we should probably move on shortly, but, um, I was, I was reading it, especially as she's quoting scripture and, and hymns and things. And I'm reading this totally as a church insider, you know, full disclosure. I've 
been in the church, specifically a United Methodist church since birth. And and so I'm very much caught up in all the things that she was talking about. And some of the reviews that I read criticized this to a, to a degree. Um, if you're not part of this tradition, like some of what she has to say might not make any sense to you because she really doesn't go into clarifying what she's saying. Um, but for me, that opens up those those questions that then like per provoke the reader onto further thought and discovery, which is, you know, isn't that the purpose of scholarly work in the first place? Um, one of the examples is like, she makes a comment about Aslan being on the move, which I think for me is very much, um, it, it's a good, I guess it's not a metaphor in and of itself, but it's, we'll use that word. It's a good metaphor for this book. Like her exuberance, like you said, Carla is very much, um, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, they end, um, C.S. Lewis's, you know, seven book series um, that's basically a somewhat heavy handed allegory of the kingdom of God um, coming to fruition. Um, but they end with all the main characters kind of uh, sorry for the spoiler, but yeah, it's an old series. So all the main characters essentially going to heaven um, and being greeted at the door by one of the, the kingdom's like most ardent advocates, you know, he, he was this little mouse who was a, a valiant warrior and, you know, Reba Chief keeps telling them, telling them further up and further in. And it's, there's this joyful running towards a goal. And like, for me, that's very much what this, what this book was doing. And by inserting those sort of things and she, she does footnote them so that you can go and read more about what she has to say in a lot of places, especially the scriptural ones. Um, for me, that was kind of pointing a finger toward the fact that she was doing it intentionally again, like you said, whether it matters or not, Carla, I don't know, but um, she was at least thinking about it as she was doing it. And that, that I think is certainly fascinating. And yeah, there's definitely a pulling of the, like you're saying the hymns and, and some of this Christian literature and those types of things that seems like a, a a move toward popular, not popular, but sort of folksy folk, folk wisdom, I guess. um, That seems somehow, in a, in a real traditional way, this feminine space. I don't know if that makes sense, but anyway, yeah. Okay. Let's move on a bit, um, a little deeper into the structure of the book. Um, I'm going to talk first about chapters four and six, um, both of those chapters talk about the kinds of women that are in the Bible and not in the Bible and sort of how to negotiate female presences within sacred texts. Uh, chapter four is called The Silent Women of Paul, uh, but it's important to talk about the punctuation within that title. Um, after the word silent, there is a question mark in parentheses, so um, a, a little bit of kind of deconstructionist punctuation there. We're supposed to question um, whether or not these women are silent. And primarily, um, the chapter argues for social and historical context in reading the Pauline letters. Uh, The chapter's central question asks, how do we find a place for women in the scripture while still affirming the authority of scripture and not just um, reading for what we want to be there, just looking for um, the things that we're looking for and not focusing on the other things that are present. Uh, So she 
quotes N.T. Wright about the authority of Scripture, um, and, and this is about the part I started to be won over by this book, because I'm a big N.T. Wright fan. Um, I don't know about the rest of you ladies, but uh, I think he's great. And so she quotes him saying, uh, To affirm the authority of Scripture is precisely not to say we know what Scripture means and don't need to raise any more questions. It's always a way of saying that the church in each generation must make fresh and rejuvenated efforts to understand Scripture more fully and live by it more thoroughly, even if that means cutting across cherished traditions. Uh, and then she uses that quote to dig deeper into um, two historically and politically problematic um, Scriptures. First Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Uh, and here they are. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 says, Women should be silent during church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. And 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 says, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Both of those are from the New Living Translation, uh, which Bessie uses a lot. So she first says that these verses are really problematic and make a lot of women angry, to which I say, Amen. And then she talks about the necessity of social and historical context. She does that in two ways. Uh, first, she says, there are these other less often quoted verses wherein Paul encourages women in leadership. Uh, one example she gives is 1 Corinthians 14.39. Uh, and then she also says that these commands to be quiet and not be in leadership are not to all women of all times, uh, but to women in a primary time and place who were gossiping a lot, who were not listening to other people, who were, um, to quote my southern great-grandmother, getting a little too big for their britches. Uh, so she says context is important uh, in these verses, and we should pay more attention to those things. Uh, that's pretty much chapter 4. Anybody else want to weigh in on that before I move on to chapter 6? No, I think you got it. Yeah, I, I um, love these early chapters and just wanted to point out, too, that good Wesleyan that I am, the Wesleyan quadrilateral is wedged in here, right? Like, you can't just look at scripture. You have to understand the tradition of the church and our own reason and our own experience as part of our interpretation and recognize that it's an interpretation. Nobody is reading the scripture and saying, well, this is obviously what it is. You're bringing lots of things to the table. Um, and, and I like that she's, you know, pointing out what may be obvious to some of us. You can't see me, we are not in the same room, but on that <laughs> section in the margins of my book, it says, Sheila will talk about the Wesleyan <laughs> quadrilateral. That's good. <laughs> Job done. Yes, very good. Uh, okay, so chapter six um, also has interesting punctuation in it. Um, 
and it's entitled Patron Saints, Spiritual Midwives, and Biblical Womanhood, with Biblical Womanhood in scare quotes. Uh, so in this chapter, Bessie argues for complexity in our conceptions of biblical womanhood, and she does this mostly through um, the coinage of the term spiritual midwives. And when she's talking about spiritual midwives, uh, she defines them as um, an imperfect metaphor, but in a way it's like they helped give birth to some new part of me. Maybe they were the midwives by their lives, their faith, their obedience, their works, their prayers, for the work that God has birthed in me and through me and countless others. And I rise up and call blessed the women who have mothered, nurtured, nourished, sourced, watched over my spiritual journey. Most of them won't ever know that they influenced me as much as they did, but it's true. God used them powerfully in my life, and they did that simply by living their own lives in obedience to God, regardless of crowds or sales figures or proper titles. And these spiritual midwives she talks about are um, friends and relatives, people that she knows, and also um, people she's never met, both living and dead, uh, in addition to talking about things like aunts and grandmothers, she talks about authors and saints and thinkers that have influenced her. And I really, really dig this idea. I really like the idea of kind of collecting and carrying around with us this community of women who have made us who we are and who um, have sort of taught us how to be women of faith in various um, overlapping and sometimes conflicting ways. So uh, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. Um, you didn't know I was going to do this, but I'm doing it now. Uh, can you, each of you, tell me uh, a couple of examples of who your spiritual midwives are? I'm going to name mine too, but I'm going to make you go first. <laughs> sure, I can go. Um, wow, that's a, that's a big question because I, I agree. I loved this this um, whole thought process, having birthed my children with midwives. Um, midwives are, are dear and, and they're very dear to me. And this whole idea of this being a labor, um, she talked a little bit toward the end of the book about um, if women were speaking more in the church, there would be more talk about labor and birth and less talk about war and, and violence and those types of things. And, and that, I mean, that's however you want to interpret that. But I feel like um, I liked that idea of, of this whole thing being a, a process of laboring um, and of, of uh, some birth is a somewhat violent thing. It's, it's an intense thing. And, and the idea that we are living in something that's intense, that will have a positive outcome is really cool. And that we as women are helping to birth these things out in each other is really fantastic. So let's see. Um, my own would be my grandma, Alice, uh, was, a, was an incredible woman who lived a very difficult life. Um, but was, uh, um, always a positive person. I can't, I can't think of her without thinking of her smile, um, and miss her very much. Um, my mom is also another one for me. Uh, we, we have different, a lot of different ideas at this point, uh, but she, um, never ceases to love. Um, she can talk to her kids. Uh, all three of us have really struggled through some of our faith journey, as, a, as adults, and she can talk with us about those things without ever sounding judgmental or, or angry or um, any of that. She, she just loves us, and that's a pretty incredible skill. Um, people outside of my family, that's, that's a little harder. I have to think for a second, but I would say um, 
My friend, I have a good friend named Darby and she is kind of constantly, um, asking me questions about my faith. And we've also come to some different conclusions probably as we've grown, we went to Bible college together. Um, and, and, uh, but she's constantly urging me to think more and to think better and to, uh, not just rely on my, I I tend to rely on intuition for some of these things. And, and while I think that's a positive too, in some cases, she's always, always asking me to think and to read and to research. And, um, she urges me on to be, to be more, uh, and I think that's a fantastic relationship for me to have. So those are probably my top ones. Sheila? Uh, yeah. First of all, Carla, thank you for giving me time to think a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, the first person is, is certainly my own mom. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of thinking to come to that conclusion. She, you know, as I've mentioned a few times, even just today, I was essentially born and raised in the church. My parents are, um, strong, strong believers. And I learned from the example of both my parents, but, um, my mom in the way that, um, she is not a silent woman. You know, I, I was, I, I was brought up by this person who speaks her mind and, um, and, and is, is always thoughtful, but is decisive and, um, scriptural and looks to, you know, what she thinks is, is the best interpretation of, you know, whatever we're reading at hand. And we often come to the same conclusions, but I'm always impressed by and encouraged by, um, her candor and her willingness to share. And maybe to a fault, I've, you know, developed that as my habit as well. When I go to church and Sunday school and things, and sometimes um, my husband very lovingly has to remind me that other people have things to say too, because I want very much to share everything that I think about certain things. And I get a lot of that from my mom. You know, you, you, you learn something or have a revelation and you want to share it with everyone because it's so important to you. And you, you know, want to in, in part be, um, you know, a midwife for others if, that might be the case. And so um, that's a, a big part, I think, of who I am comes from how I've observed observed my mother um, in conversations and, and her passionate way of speaking about Christ and about the church. Um, and it's, it's invigorating to see her um, continue that in, um, in her own life and the, the various um, challenges that she takes up and, and I don't know, missions, I guess would be the right word that she takes up. Um, it's an, it's inspiring. And so I, I definitely look to her. Um, like you said, Carla, going outside the family gets, gets a lot trickier, um, because there's so many people that have been so influential in like different ways. And because, you know, I only get but a short season with most of them, I can, could spend hours talking about the little bits that they've contributed and how important those little bits are to understanding myself as a Christian. Um, but I, I will single out one um, woman that was my teacher for a couple of years too short while I was in grad school. Oddly, she was not a grad school teacher. She was, uh, I guess you could say, a Bible teacher at our church in Tallahassee. Um, and her name is Beth, and she is just an amazing woman dedicated to, to learning the heart of God. Just everything she does is, is to figure out, you know, what God's word means um, to her, to us collectively. She started a woman's Bible study 
um, like I said, when I started grad school, which, which turned out to be exactly what I needed as I was going through my master's program. Um, you know, Victoria, we went through a few classes together and there were more than a few times I'd show up on Friday Bible study with these ladies and go, I don't think I'm in the right place. This is not what I had intended. And, you know, she was always able to help me come back to, um, scripture that pointed towards, um, God's providence and, um, and how, uh, figuring out how to say this and how, um, you know, my calling is just as important as anyone else's calling, even if it looks different than everyone else's calling. Um, something I'm still trying to parse through and live up to, but, um, certainly began the birthing process for me, um, spiritually as, as a reader and potential teacher, um, of, of scripture and, and Christ in general. So, Thanks for making me think about those and say them out loud. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so I have a couple um, inside my family and outside, and also I'm going to uh, do what Bessie does and throw a couple authors uh, in there as well. So first, um, I mentioned her, quoted her earlier, uh, my gram, my great-grandmother, um, who has, she, she died when I was seven, but she's, um, influenced my life in a lot of really huge ways. Um, the biggest one probably being she, um, was an educator. Um, and I, I use that word in, instead of teacher because she really believed in, in teaching the whole person, um, not just dealing with intellectualism, but she was one of the first, if not the first, um, teachers in her school district um, in rural Georgia um, to not just teach an integrated class, but to request it. Um, she had a, again in South Georgia, um, had a now card in her 50s or 60s, um, in, in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, she was, uh, she raised two girls by herself, um, again, in the South, um, in the, in the first half of the 20th century. She was just an incredibly, um, strong woman, um, who she knew how to cook and clean and, you know, knew all that Southern etiquette stuff, um, but she also was not afraid to raise her voice, especially, uh, when it was necessary to stand up for people who couldn't really raise theirs for one reason or another. Uh, so I, I love her, uh, very deeply, and I hope, um, that I, I'm making her proud. I, I hope that I'm the kind of teacher she would want me to be. Uh, so that's, that's the first one, um, and a couple of people I do not know, but feel like I know. Um, first, uh, Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer, um, w was a big deal for me as a kid. Uh, when we learned kind of the kiddie version of church history, um, she was one of very few women um, covered in those Sunday school classes and definitely the only woman with a disability um, who was included. Um, if, you got, if listeners and everyone else, uh, if you don't know, Fanny Crosby was, was blind um, and, and has written 
dozens and dozens of, of hymns that you know and sing all the time. Um, so she was she was important in my intellectual development because she was sort of the first person that affirmed for me um, that people with disabilities can sort of contribute to the world in big, um, important ways and don't just have to be, like, object lessons for able-bodied people. Um, and lastly, um, Margaret Atwood, who I, I know a lot of, um, a lot of Christians and a lot of thinkers, um, and also specifically Nathan Gilmore, are probably yelling at me right now, um, about how heavy-handed Handmaid's Tale is, and, and you would be correct, but, um, I read it for the first time when I was 14, and right when I was sort of starting to try and crystallize how I felt about women's roles in the church, and though I understand that the metaphors are pretty ham-fisted now, um, at the time, it was just so amazing to hear somebody saying, like, these uh, women are being marginalized, and if we keep marginalizing them the way we are now, things are going to be bad. Um, as a teenager reading that, I was just like, somebody understands, somebody gets it, and that's amazing. Um, also, I met her a few years ago uh, when she came to Florida State, and uh, I caught her Q&A there. And at, great ever. <laughs> it was great, yay! Um, and, and afterwards, I went up to her, um, and I, I left, I guess it had been a rush day or whatever. I meant to have her sign my book, but I didn't bring it with me. But I didn't want to leave without telling her that she was important to me. So I said I was really kind of sheepish and said, I know you get this all the time, but um, I read Handmaid's Tale when I was a teenager, and it really... Um, brought me into feminism in a lot of ways, and so I just wanted to say thanks. And she stopped and, like, rested her hand on top of my hand and said, uh, thank you. And I thought, that is so wonderful, and, you know, she didn't have to do that and didn't have to be nice, because she does get that all the time. So, um, that's my last spiritual midwife, except to say, um, I, I definitely consider, um, all of my CFP panelists and friends uh, to be among this group. You guys are great at encouraging me, and uh, and I'm really glad that we do this project together. And thanks for uh, thanks for providing that in my life. Me too. I was going to say that as well. That my chats with Victoria have always been the same. <laughs> and the other thing I would say too is my daughters are that for me. They are constantly sort of pushing me through to another. I don't know, to make me think this all through in a, in a new way, because it matters more to me that they have a world that they want to live in. You know, uh, I don't know. It's just interesting how it doesn't have to be people who are ahead of you in some way or older than you. Um, yeah, my daughters have definitely influenced my, my walk in this stuff. Awesome. Uh, so listeners, please weigh in um, on the Facebook page, on the Christian Humanist blog, in the show notes. Tell us who your spiritual midwives are and why. We'd love to hear that. Uh, so one last thing um, that Chapter 6 does. Uh, Bessie also uses Chapter 6 to criticize current conceptions of biblical womanhood that focus too much on motherhood and marriage. Uh, 
she says, Yes, I find God in the quotidian rhythms of my life as a wife and mother. I gain tremendous satisfaction from managing my household and raising my tinies. Uh, that's what she calls her children, her tinies, which is adorable. <laughs> uh, to love God and love people. But the doing of those things isn't making me a biblical woman. Um, she goes on to quote uh, Carolyn Custis James, who says, A message that points to the marriage altar as the starting gate of God's calling for women leaves us with nothing to tell them, except that God's purpose for them is not here and now, but somewhere down the road. Mm -hmm. uh, so she says we should think about biblical womanhood um, not just in terms of wives and mothers, um, but in a, in, a brighter, in a broader conception, um, to, to value different women with different goals. Uh, but even though she does that, even though she broadens this conception, um, she also devotes a couple of chapters speaking specifically to marriage and motherhood and uh, affirming women who experience God's grace primarily through those roles. So, Sheila, tell us more about those chapters. Sure. I was just thinking, um, man, we should have wrapped up with the spiritual midwife chapter. Um, it's so affirming and, and that message needs to be heard, I think, and, and spoken more frequently that, um, it, that as women, especially we're so much more than, you know, just wives, just moms, even though those are important roles for those of us who find ourselves in them at some point. Um, so with that, I'll talk about chapters five and seven. Chapter five is the chapter on marriage. It's called Dancing Warriors, which um, I thought was interesting at first and then grew to enjoy. So she sets the stage here by narrating an awkward but joyful moment on the dance floor with the man she would eventually marry, um, talking about, you know, his uh, lack, considerable lack of dance moves and how she kind of made fun of it and then realized that, he was being serious and then she felt bad. Um, so she just juxtaposes that experience with first, you know, getting to learn how each other moves on the floor with uh, the everyday reality and challenge of being married. Um, I like the story a lot because it rings true in my own life. Um, I certainly have had, you know, those awkward moments um, with my, my partner and then new partner and um, thought that it, translated pretty well into newly, newlywed life, learning how to move around this other person in a space you now share intimately and all of the different levels of intimacy. And, um, you know, it, it can be a real challenge. And she, she points to that, um, and, and discusses it nicely. Um, she, she, I like the, the weeness of this chapter and I'm totally making up that word, you know, the, the us, um, she says in response to this hypothetical questioner, um, you know, kind of an amalgam of people who have asked us questions or implied judgments. Um, I'm reading from page, I think it's 73 or 74, um, things like, well, who is in charge here? Because of course, um, somebody being the spiritual head of the household is important in a lot of views of marriage, biblical marriage. Who's in charge here? We are. Yes, but if push comes to shove, who is the leader? We are. But then who is the spiritual head of your home? She says, only Jesus, only ever our Jesus. And um, goes on to talk about mutual submission, which I, I, I'm i sorry, I'm not going to get into here. Um, just because I feel like talking about submission to the nth degree is kind of um, what's been done before. But I, I like how she addresses this and the idea of, Jesus is always the head and 
in, in submitting to each other mutually, we're really submitting to Christ less than we're, or more than we're submitting to, to the man or what have you. Um, and I like that a lot. And then she, um, she reads scripture like she does in the earlier chapters that um, you were reading, Victoria. She reads scripture with a nuanced understanding of historical context and goes on to, um, to, to lay what blame for patriarchy she lays, which um, is not a lot, but lays it on the historical Greco-Roman household codes, as she names them, not necessarily the scripture writers. And so um, she says, let's see, let's get the right page up here. Um, she says that since, uh, this is page 75, since patriarchy and hierarchy were consequences of the fall, these systems were built into the code, the Greco-Roman code, because the maintaining of total authority in the home was critical to the functioning of a society that re relied on the total authority of the government and or religion. And at the time of the New Testament writings on marriage, the Greco-Roman household codes were part of the Pavromana law. So these select verses of teachings for wives and children and slaves line up with the law of the land. Um, and I read that and just thought, you know, well, isn't that just another example of rendering unto Caesar what was Caesar's, which, of course, is a lesson Jesus taught the Pharisees in Matthew um, chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. He talks about, you know, they ask him who the, who, uh, whether they should pay taxes, and this, that's what he tells them. Um, she also goes on to mention the subversion in these scriptures, how the writers take the original codes and add to them. And, you know, she calls this subversion, um, which I like. My my background, full disclosure, is uh, um, post-colonial slash um, world slash I don't know whatever else it's been called literature, um, but literature from usually in English from around the world. Um, and a lot of these writers are considered revolutionary because they're doing that. They're signifying on writing that's been done by the West and saying, um, you know, that's great, but let's let's take it and, for what it really means in our context. And that's what she's doing. She's showing the additional context, uh, mentioning things like treating wives and slaves kindly. It's not something that would have popped up in a Roman court of law. Um, Peter and Paul are working she says, within imperfect systems, because with Roman officials looking for every excuse to imprison Christians, any challenge would bring scrutiny and persecution for the early church. Um, so the, the advocacy of the system is not because it's the best thing, but because it was the best thing at the time. So that Christians could, you know, continue to grow the church and learn from each other um, as, as a community, which I thought was interesting and certainly worth talking about. So I liked there that she's talked about patriarchy, not being God's dream for humanity. Um, it's in line with what you were saying there, that this is what was, but not necessarily, we can't necessarily call this, this wasn't the, the dream. This wasn't the original intent. I liked how she spoke about that. That was so huge for me. Like that is a thing that I have thought of course, because we're here making this show. Uh, but but to see that in black and white letters, like I, I really had a moment with that sentence. That was so huge. Yeah, it's great. And she comes back to that. Um, um, hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about the kingdom come section at the end of the podcast today. But 
Um, I agree. I, I loved it, highlighted it, and put little stars by it. So, um, The other thing I wanted to note from this chapter is her discussion of the term Ezer Konegdo. Did I pronounce that any kind of way? I do not remember how we pronounced it in the last episode, <laughs> but that's okay. Okay. So um, I thought it was worth pointing out again. Um, this is the term that was applied to Eve upon her creation, and it's often translated as helpmeet, um, but she points out that rather than that simple term, the, this view of women suggests our role is more spirited, uh, that the other instances of the term connecto apply to military situations in the Bible, and even when God um, helps Israel in battle, a.k.a. does all the fighting and wins everything all the time. Um, and as Bessie notes, the term calls us to be warriors, um, if you want to use a strong term or allies at the at the least. And I like that. I'm um, a strong, feisty, spirited person and love the idea of, of going to battle, even though I don't like the violence inherent in the word. There are so many systems that need to be fought um, as women and, you know, as women advocating for other women and children and people. I felt like this was a really, this was an opening moment for me um, to see, to see women called out in this way, um, not just to be supports, but, you know, to, to be these strong advocates and um, fighters for what's right. So do y'all have anything else you wanted to mention about the marriage chapter or thoughts that you had? I think I, I liked also, as you were saying, her talk, her discussion about mutual submission and the mutuality of that. I think um, I've had thoughts about this whole submission thing before about about submitting being an active agency rather than something that's imposed by the outside. It's it's not some it's not a putting down of oneself, but a lifting up of another. Um, and and especially if that's done mutually, I think there's something really valuable in it. Um, um, yeah. So I guess that that kind of rung rung true to some things that I had thought before or, or tried to sort out. Yeah, I, I think we've we've talked about mutual submission on the show before, so I, I don't want to hit it too hard. But I, I really love what you said, Carla, about it being um, a, a lifting up of someone else instead of a putting down of yourself. I, I think that all of us would, would do good to keep that in mind. Yeah, and I mean, isn't that what Christ calls us to, right? Like, the least shall be the greatest in the kingdom. Um, and it's it's about serving others more than about making ourselves hurt, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, um, The other chapter I was going to talk about moving right along is the motherhood chapter then, which is called Narrative Reborn, um, which, again, I, I just thought was a great title considering what I think she's doing with narrative and tone throughout, throughout the book. Um, That's a good point. I like that. Sheila. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We do a lot with narrative. Um, So she, in this chapter, as um, I think Carly, you pointed out earlier, shares very personal struggles with becoming a mother, both physically. um, She had, she lost a number of children before um, ultimately having her three tinies, um, which you're right. is super cute. Um, and then afterwards, the emotional and, and mental difficulties that she had um, fitting into that role of mother. Um, one of the, the standout moments was her um, 
a discovery, a revelation that Proverbs 31 is a celebration of a particular woman, not a job description, which was nice to read, especially as I'm currently a stay-at-home mom and feeling like I'm trying to hit, you know, all the highlights every day. The house is clean and the, the money is being tracked and the, the children are, well, one, I have a child at this point, is clothed and happy and fed and learning things. And, you know, as I, as I go through my own to-do list, literal to-do list every day. It was it was very um, enlightening and freeing to read her <laughs> come to terms with her own exhaustion and release. So I like that. In fact, uh, page, I gotta pull this page up here real quick, but on page 113, um, I wanted to just read real quick what she had said because it really struck a chord with me. Okay, on page 114, um, she says, this is what mothering taught me about God. We relax into this relationship. He caught me with a taste of unconditional love, and then he taught me how to relax into that loving. He gently mentored me in eschewing performance and impossible obligations and outsider standards of success in favor of freedom and creativity. And I just really love that. I needed to read that <laughs> at this juncture in my life. Um, but there's so many great things there. I mean, having a child certainly teaches you about unconditional love um, and also about, you know, the anxiety that comes with wanting to be the best possible parent to the little person and how to help them become the best version of themselves. Um, and, and reading this was uh, very sweet to me. Um, and then she continues on living loved. We relax our expectations, our efforts, our strivings, our rules, our spine, our breath, our plans, our job descriptions and checklists. We step off the treadmill of the world and the treadmill of religious performance. We are not the authors of our redemption. No, God is at work and his love for us is boundless and deep, wide and high beyond all comprehension. So this is one of those moments, I suppose, that's not terribly scholarly, but really hit home for me um, in a very personal way. And again, I think it's kind of the project of this book. Here's a very feminine way of saying, you know, take a deep breath, step back and relax. You're doing a great job. Um, she's she's affirming without knowing me personally at all because she's telling me her story. And I very much appreciated that. So um, the other thing to point to quickly was, um, again, I think Carla already mentioned this, but um, she, she notes that if there were more women pastors and teachers and readers and writers, um, we might hear more about birth and less about peace being quiet, which I thought was interesting. Um, and she talks about specifically Jesus's birth narrative. And at Christmas time, you know, we all read the accounts from Luke and it's all very, um, <laughs> anesthetized I guess it's very clean and it is peaceful and you can imagine you know Jesus not crying at all in the manger um, when you read that story and for those who have gone through the birth process or witnessed it um, firsthand as older people obviously not babies themselves um, there's there's nothing that seems to correlate between Christ's birth story and most women's birthing experiences. And when I thought about Jesus's birth in this way, um, you know, using my own story of birthing my daughter as a lens, I laughed and, and I cried and I wondered all sorts of things and, you know, have all sorts of questions that won't be answered for a very long time. 
like, I don't know how Mary got through it with just Joseph as her midwife. <laughs> and, um, and, and the, the just complete wonderment that she must have felt staring at this tiny, tiny little person who had been part of her and then all of a sudden was, um, you know, there in person and getting to stare at his little toes and um, the, you know, we read about Christ being fully human and I just think about, you know, and fully divine. And I just think about how amazing it must've been for Mary to experience his tiny little humanity before anybody else could. Um, so again, to read from Bessie's narrative, this is around page 119. She says she wasn't kneeling. This is Mary. Mary wasn't kneeling chastely beside a clean manger, refraining from touching her babe just moments after birth. Instead, sore and exhilarated, she likely pressed a sleepy, wrinkled, vernix slick newborn to her mouth for kissing, treasuring every moment in her heart, marveling not only at his very presence, but at her own strength. She knew that surrender and letting go and obedience are true work, and she tucked every baby mew into her own marrow. And, you know, scripture tells us that she pondered things in her heart from time to time and how very, very measly a sentence that really is when, you know, confronted with, um, you know, my own first experience of motherhood. And then I, my own thought there was because Jesus came into the world through birth, fully human, as well as fully divine, Mary then becomes God's partner in this enterprise, right? Symbolically, women are partners in the life-giving ministry of Christ. Um, and I, I was just very moved by that. And, um, that's all I had to say about the chapter. I was wondering if, um, Victoria or Carla, you had anything else you'd like to share? Carla, how about you? Um, no, I just, I found the whole, um, her discussion of birth and, and, um, the sort of leaning into the pain and leaning into the sort of, uh, complexities of it, um, to be really fantastic. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly nothing's changed me. And she was, she was good to say that this was a lot of her process toward, toward, uh, feminism and toward understanding God's love was through motherhood and how for other people it comes in different ways. Um, but I would say I, I felt the real kinship in, in her sort of conversations about motherhood and, and the pain and the, and the beauty and the intensity of that experience. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, I just, I related with her understanding of God better through her children. And, and even though I didn't relate to it as someone who has not given birth, I really, it opened my eyes and broadened my perspective in a, a way that I thought was really beneficial. Uh, that section that Sheila read criticizing the kind of clean Christmas carol aesthetic and, and talking about a, a more realistic picture was really, um, really cool for me. I mean, to, to think about, it's one thing to say Jesus is fully human, but quite another thing to say, like, um, you know, there's like, there's a placenta and there's blood and there's, you know, like these real sort of actual physicality involved. Um, and it was, it was really, um, beneficial, I think, for me to think about that. And on that note, um, let's transition to our final point on the reading, um, which is just a really quick lightning round. Uh, 
one more thing or passage in the book that we would like to discuss. Uh, so I want to start, and I want to start at the end um, with the last full paragraph of the book before um, before the notes and acknowledgments section. Uh, it's on page 197 and says, Now I send you out. I send you out to the spot where you are right now. You're right where you belong. You have everything you need to begin, and we will walk it out together. We are a part of the redemptive movement of God in the world for his daughters and his sons. You and me, we are kingdom people, an outpost of redemption engaged in God's mission of reconciliation. Blessed be his kingdom, now and forevermore. Peace be with you, my friend. Peace. Uh, and, and that's how the book proper ends. And while I have the same sort of tonal trepidations as I did before, um, I, I really liked the focus on you are where you are for a reason, and, and that's good and that's okay. Um, I'm I'm in this sort of weird place in my life where I I feel like I feel like I'm in a middle, uh, like I'm almost done with my degree, um, but not quite. Um, I I only have a part-time job, um, which is is sometimes fulfilling and sometimes trying, and and that's a whole other conversation. But I I really needed at this moment to hear like you are right where you are and you can serve here and now and. Uh, and, and those kinds of things. So that is my lightning round contribution. Who wants to go next? I will. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about being or the epigraph before the, being, the uh, chapter on the kingdom. Um, but because we're running out of time, I will just say briefly that it's worth reading and noting that, you know, the kingdom is, um, God's kingdom coming is something we shouldn't just look forward to, but actively participate in creating now. <laughs> um, that part of the Lord's prayer, I don't think was meant to be one to just hope and pine for, but one to strive for. Um, and as part of that, I want to go back to the beginning, fairly full circle and um, pick up something that Bessie said that I completely agreed with is something I do. Um, talking about how she used to practice anger and cynicism she says, I would jump Pavlovian to write every wrong and defend every truth, refute every inflammatory blog post, pontificate about every question. Um, any sniff of disagreement was a dinner bell clanging to my anger. Come and get it. Rally the troops. Like many of us, I called it critical thinking to hide my bitter and critical heart. And I wondered why I had no real joy in this ongoing search for truth uh, that hit me over the head like the proverbial ton of bricks. Um as that is generally how I respond to life and then read her words later and kind of reread these things over and over again in her book. And she says, um, I will practice painfully over and over patience and peace until my gentle answers turn away even my own wrath. I think that's one of my prevailing takeaways from this is just this idea and hopefully practice of, um, showing more love and less anger and more positive working toward the kingdom um, and turning away my own wrath. 
I was really convicted by that passage too. I yeah. thought <laughs> I do that way too much. And and that is also part of the reason why I'm reticent to entirely be upset about her tone because I I, I do think that part of the reason the tone kind of puts me off is that I'm I'm too entrenched in what I think critical thinking sounds like and yeah. and and I think she's challenging that in in interesting ways for me. I agree. I agree. And that was my reluctance to say that there's a problem with the tone and maybe more of a problem with me. Um, but I, um, yeah. And I think she, she's intentional about, about, um, probably she's adopted this tone in some ways to, to offset where she feels like she would have been or, or how she would have spoken about this at one point. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I found that interesting too. Did you have another passage you wanted to point us to Carla? Um, yeah, I think, um, there was a passage and I'm trying to find it and I can't, um, but she talked about leaning into your doubts and sort of being willing to live in that space, um, of a, of a kind of in between. Um, and, and I, I, I related with that a lot. I feel like I'm, I'm at a point, I guess, faith wise where I, there are things I believe (laughs) and yet there are a lot of things I really question and don't feel confident in. And I kind of keep waiting for, I feel like there have been times sort of, I don't know, faith crises in my life before and, uh, I'll get kind of through them and think, Oh, I've, I've got a little bit, something I can hold on to. And then I feel like that kind of pulls too. And I guess I'm sort of waiting for these last things to pull. And, um, and it's kind of a, a, I don't know, just a kind of a sad place to be, I guess. Um, and then towards the end of the book, she talks, she's talking about kingdom. It's in that kingdom chapter. Um, and she says, I, I also think the kingdom is every evil and terrible moment in life, in a life somehow redeemed. And um, I think that every, with every fiber of my being, I want to believe that. And I, I really struggle to believe that, 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 that the evil and terrible moments in life can be redeemed. Um, they seem so abundant in so many lives. Um, so I think I am, I, I guess that, that it pulled me to that spot where she, she seems to have come to a point where she's come through these moments of of doubt and now really believes in the, in the redemption of these things. And I guess I feel myself not able to quite get there. I I feel like that, um, yeah, I, I struggle more with believing these things are somehow random and, and not really that the redemption of them may not be possible or, or may not be likely, I guess. So anyway, (laughs) that was where I went. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Unfortunately, we are, as Sheila said, running short on time, so I would love to talk more about the coexistence of faith and doubt. Maybe we should make that a future show. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for now, uh, let's go to our recommendation segment. Uh, What do you have for us, Sheila? Well, um, in looking up lots of reviews online, I found an interesting website that I haven't heard before. Hopefully I didn't miss it on a previous podcast, but it's called the junior project. And since y'all talked oh, about, you junior stole my week, recommendation. No! <laughs> I love, I've done this twice now, Victoria, and it always makes me happy. I'm sorry that I took it away from you, but we should really confer I'm... about these things. <laughs> we should maybe, except I tend to find these somewhat last minute. So, um, then I would always have to find another one. Um, but anyway, you can jump in then and say what you think about it too. I just, there, it's another interesting collection of, of, um, mostly women, but not all women adding their two cents about life and, um, walking Christian, you know, 
trying to live a Christian life, what have you. And it, it just seemed like a really neat collection. I've just started diving into it, but what have you got? Uh, so after, um, I, I said on the previous podcast that I hadn't really learned about Junia before and was trying to learn more. Uh, so I, I did a, a really simple Google search and after, you know, the Wikipedia page and some images, the Junia project was one of the first things that came up. So I thought, okay, I'll start here. And, um, it's a really wonderful, uh, it's a blog and also an aggregator of, um, sites and posts that spotlight a movement for women's equality, particularly in church leadership positions, and it uh, has a wealth of, of links to really great um, writers and other projects. Um, I'm, I'm still digging through it, too, but I just, I, I really enjoyed um, figuring out what Junia's legacy might look like today. Uh, so if you're also interested in that, um, we will link to that in our show notes. And I don't have another recommendation, so we're just going to have to double up on that one. Uh, Carla, what do you have for us? Um, I have, um, she mentioned in the book, this sort of both and state that she tries to stay in rather than an either or state. Um, And I had read that in The Naked Now by Richard Rohr. This idea of Rohr is R-O-H-R, Richard Rohr. Um, It's, he yeah, discusses this idea of, of Christianity and spirituality at this point being about both and uh, rather than either or and how these how those that holds to uh, sort of disparate things in connection um, and how important that is in, in today's processes. So um, that is mine. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, and that wraps us up. Thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, please drop us a line at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode or the rest of our episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. For Carla Ewert and Sheila Woodruff, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for the beginning of a two-episode series on biblical manhood and sexuality, the first episode of which will cover Mark and Grace Driscoll's book, Real Marriage. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. Perfect waist with a perfect prom queen smile.